Titus chapter 1 is our text here for this afternoon. We're going to be reading verses 10 through 16. And this is the word of Almighty God. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. <laughs> One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Bear with me, friends. Lord, I know this. What we just heard at the end of that verse is what we do not wish to be. Detestable, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. God in Christ, I pray you make us holy, growing, sanctified, useful to the master. Make us tools in your hand for your glory and give us that joy. We plead with you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. What do you call on when things get really messy? I'm sure that you pray and ask the Lord for help, which is what you should do, but who among your non-divine friends do you call upon when you need help? Is there somebody that you know is someone who's strong and capable and trustworthy? Because everybody needs a reliable friend, and I really do hope that you have one. In the time of Paul's ministry, he had a friend like this. Paul had a man he could send into the toughest situations and know that good, solid, godly work was going to get done. Paul had a gospel commando that he could send into battle on his behalf. Every once in a while, pastors have dudes like that. that you're like, okay, I can send you. It's going to be a mess, but you're going to work it out. Love having those guys. And I'm not talking about Timothy here. Timothy, when we read his books, we, or Paul's books, letters to him, Timothy looks a little timid, a little easily offended. Timothy wouldn't have been the man. Paul's man to call upon when things needed straightening out was Titus. Titus was a Gentile. He was a Greek. Titus is the Gentile who was at the center of a major church debate back in Acts chapter 15. Paul also writes about it in Galatians 2. Let me tell you all something. It would have taken a man, a bold man, to stand in front of the Jerusalem council and be personally the test case as to whether or not Gentiles should be forced to follow the Jewish customs and laws in order to be saved. Titus was that man. Titus was also the bold man that Paul sent into Corinth to straighten out the mess that was there. How would you like to have been given that job? Fix the Corinthians. Go after it, buddy. <laughs> 
You probably recall, if it's not fresh in your mind, the church in Corinth was full of all sorts of immorality, including some pretty perverse stuff. Some of the people were in Corinth that were questioning, is Paul even legitimate? Titus is the guy that Paul probably sent to carry that harsh letter that he sent to crack the whip and get the people in Corinth back on track. Paul knew he could trust Titus. Now, last week, we read that Paul sent Titus to straighten things out in Crete. Today, we're going to see why Paul sent in a soldier like Titus to take care of business. If you, call, if you recall, last week, Paul wanted Titus to appoint elders, church leaders with sound doctrine in every church on Crete. Well, the text for today is going to expand on why it is that the churches on Crete needed leaders with sound doctrine. And as we study, we're going to remember why it is that it's crucial that you and I are safeguarded by sound, solid biblical teaching. Today, there are going to be four points for you to write down that will help us as we consider threats in the church and how to respond. So point number one. Be aware of false teachers. Be aware of false teachers. Look at this from 10 to 13. He says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans... A prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So Paul says the reason Titus needed to appoint doctrinally strong leaders in every church is that there were many dangerous teachers in Crete. It's not that there were just a few nut jobs hanging around Crete with crazy ideas. There were many, he says, who were insubordinate. They are, they're rebellious to biblical authority. They are empty talkers. They're deceivers. They're people who say a lot, with, like a, use a bunch of words, but they don't say anything of actual value. Instead, they say things that trick people. They say things that lead people away from right doctrine. Now, as the danger of false teachers like those guys on Crete, is that a real danger for us in the modern world? Yeah, it is. It always has been, by the way. False teachers are all over the internet. False teachers worm their way into churches and Bible studies and seminaries, if you can believe it. I want to read you something from Albert Moeller. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. That's my alma mater, by the way, so don't make fun of it. Moeller tells this story of an experience he had in his first year of seminary, the school that he now runs and whose culture he has now changed, by the way. This was back in the 1980s, which is not that long ago. But Moeller writes this, quote, The trouble emerged even on the very first day of my studies in the very first class, in the very first hour. 
The professor introduced the syllabus, and then he asked each of us to state our name and where we were from and to give the reason why we were taking this course in New Testament studies. As each student answered, chair to chair and desk to desk, it finally came to a young woman who was studying to be an international missionary. She gave her name and home state, and then she said, I'm taking this course because I want to know more about Jesus Christ and his shed blood. The professor exploded. He said, there will be no more bloody cross religion in this classroom. I was unprepared for this. The class was unprepared for this. He continued, this is not to be tolerated. It is beneath dignity and self-respect to believe in a God who had to kill in order to forgive. Is this understood? I don't know if everyone in the class that day understood where the professor was coming from, but we definitely understood where the professor would not allow our discussion to head. End quote. Can you imagine? In a seminary classroom, a place where young preachers and missionaries were to be molded and shaped in a conservative theological denomination for the most part. A seminary professor denied the atonement. Can you imagine someone entrusted with the minds of soon-to-be pastors telling them to set aside any bloody cross religion? You probably can't imagine it. But you ought to be able to, because false teaching has the ability to sneak in anywhere if we will not be diligent to watch out for it. Paul said pastors, we can add all Christians, need to have sound doctrine in order to be on the lookout for false teachers. Why? Because in Crete and in the modern world, there are many false teachers who will arise to lead astray the people of Christ's church. When Paul was leaving behind the, the, the people of Ephesus, when he was going away, headed off to Jerusalem, Paul charged the leaders of that church to watch out for false teachers. In Acts 20, verses 29 through 31, Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul gave Timothy the same warning, probably about the same time he wrote Titus here, maybe even a year or so after Titus. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And today, one need merely listen to the variety of doctrines espoused in churches, on podcasts, on YouTube, not to mention bad books, to recognize that false doctrine is still all around us. So there's no way that all the doctrines that are taught out there are right because they contradict each other. 
False teaching about Christ, about the cross, about his church, about a host of other things is common, and you've got to be aware that it's there. Now, if you look at what Paul wrote to Titus and to Timothy, you get an understanding that there is more than one type of false teaching out there that they were dealing with. You could find men in Paul's day that taught that the deeds of the flesh count for nothing because only the inner spirit mattered. By the way, how spiritual does that sound? Doesn't that sound spiritual? Until you consider the fact that those men would then allow their followers to participate in all sorts of physical sinful activities declaring, hey, the body's doing it, but my spirit's not involved. Ugh. They led people into lawlessness, into licentiousness, into sexual immorality because, hey, it's only the spirit. It's only the body, not the spirit. But then you go to the other side of the coin. There were false religious teachers who were deeply interested in the rules. On Crete, the false teachers were especially those of what is called the circumcision party. These were a group of ethnic Jews who said that every person who wants to be saved has to follow the Jewish laws, especially the law of circumcision. If you want to truly be God's child, you've got to put the law on first, they said. That is a false teaching in the form of what should have been put to rest at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, nearly 15 years before Paul wrote this. But some folks just could not let themselves accept that in Christ, God no longer counts any one particular ethnic group as better or worse than any other particular ethnic group. How many times do you see in Scripture that God has broken down the dividing walls between Jews and Gentiles and formed for himself a new people, God's people in Christ? Part of the temptation of this group was ethnic superiority. But another part was a simple man-centered concept called legalism. You guys know the word legalism? Typically, when you hear the word legalism, there's two things that you will think of in play. One of them, honestly, should be called moralism or moralistic legalism. That's when you come up with rules and laws that God didn't make and then you declare those rules and laws to be binding on other people. The Jews in Jesus' days had come up with hundreds of rules about what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. They had no authority to make those rules, but they made them, and then if you broke their rules, they said you broke the word of God. I grew up in small-town southern Illinois, which is a very southern-cultured town where I was. And you know, I knew folks that had come up, religious folks who would come up with personal rules about dancing, drinking, playing cards, how to dress, whether or not you were allowed to go to the movies, whether you could go out to a restaurant on a Sunday afternoon. And they elevated their rules to the level of religious commands. Good Christians don't do these things. That's moralistic legalism. But there's another kind of legalism that's a temptation for humanity. 
Pure legalism is the idea that you and I can make ourselves right with God by obedience to his laws and commands. It's one of the most dangerous, one of the most difficult false teachings in the world because nearly any false religion, every other world religion out there would say to you that you make yourself spiritually right by your obedience to the rules, your keeping of the commands, your behaving rightly. But guys, God has been clear with us from the very beginning Salvation has never once been based on your doing good deeds, has it? Your salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Just think with me. Who would be justified by works of the law, according to that verse of the Bible? No human being. Real quick, are you a human being? Okay, four of you are. <laughs> so glad. The four of you and the rest of this room, none of you will be made right with God through your obedience to God's law. Get that and don't lose it, okay? Galatians 3 verse 11 says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So legalistic moralism builds up rules and standards that God didn't make, declares them to be absolutes. Legalistic justification says that I will obey the commands and keep the rules and make myself right before God. It declares I'm going to be saved by my works and not through faith alone. And the circumcision group that Paul's writing about here to Titus, they did both things. They made up rules God didn't make. They assigned religious requirements for salvation that God did not assign. And they led people away from trusting in Christ alone. They were requiring people to think more about their ethnic background than about the saving work of Jesus. Quick throwaway side point here. Pay attention to our culture today, friends, because there are people out there who would tell you that the most important thing you could think about right now is your ethnicity. Do not give in to anyone that tells you to view the world first through a lens of race. With the circumcision group, Paul says they were destroying entire families. They were setting families against one another with their false twisting of the gospel of Jesus. And Paul said these men needed to be silenced, literally muzzled, not only for the damage that they were doing, but also because they were teaching falsehood with evil motivation. They, they, they taught for shameful gain. They had a love of money that is forbidden of godly elders back in 1 verse 7 then finally for what i'm talking about right here in this little section paul says to the titus to, to the to the titus to titus that the culture was one more reason to watch out for false teachers um any of you know what it's like to live in a corrupt culture 
No, I, okay, okay. No, you, I need to make sure you're getting me here. I mean, living in a city where the world around you thinks everything in that city is corrupt and evil. Have you ever experienced anything like that? A couple of you can identify with how it feels to live in a corrupt culture. You know, fair or not, when people think of our dear city, they do not first think of beautiful mountains and hiking through the canyons. They don't think of the clear blue skies and sweet neighborhoods. They don't think about the military bases and at least one lovely church I know of. Nope. When people around the world think of our city, what do they think of? The strip, the shows, gambling, slot machines, bad behavior, mob movies. Paul wrote verses 12 and 13, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Now, Paul is quoting there, most likely, the Cretan poet Epimenides, lived about 600 years before Paul wrote this. Epimenides said that Cretans were nasty people. They were liars, they were brutal, they were beast-like, they were lazy, they only cared about what was in their bellies. Get this, by Paul's day, people had made the word Crete into a verb, it was a negative term. If you, were, if you said you were cretizing, you were lying. How would you like your town's name to be made into a verb for stupid behavior? That's, that's, that's the reputation of the island of Crete. Since the Cretans said Epimenides was a prophet, Paul, with a little humor in him, I think there's absolutely an intent here by Paul to be a little funny says, Epimenides' testimony about these Cretans is true. So since they're liars and beast-like and lazy, their teachers that are causing all these problems should not be trusted. And the point that Paul's making here is, if you were part of that culture so much that you could not be separated from that culture, yeah, you probably weren't trustworthy. Now, real quick, so nobody gets themselves all knotted up, was Paul saying that every person from Crete was a nasty liar? No. But Paul was warning Titus that the false teachers infecting the church in Crete, in Crete had all, all the rough edges, all the rough edges of the brutes and liars that Crete was known for. Paul's telling Titus, be ready, have your guard up, stand strong. Now, what are you and I supposed to get from all this? Just like back then, we got people in our world who twist the gospel. We've got people in our world that teach falsehood for the sake of money. We've got people who would divide your family in half because they will not trust the word of God. We live in a culture that has, for the most part, set itself in opposition to the gospel by what it teaches and what it loves and what it approves, and that stuff happens and we've got to be on our guard so we're not led astray into sin. So Christian recognized that false teachers are indeed a danger. Not every smiling man on the internet or TV who's holding a Bible is actually preaching Jesus. Not every woman with a podcast is pointing you to the Savior. 
Not every church is a true church. Keep your eyes, your ears, and your Bibles open. Be on guard and ready to respond rightly to those who would turn people away from Jesus. With me? Okay. Second point. Rebuke false teachers. End of 13 to 14. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So what should you do with a false teacher? Don't ignore him. Don't just live with it. Don't just run away from the church the first time you hear something you don't agree with or rubs you wrong. Paul's answer to Titus is that false teachers need correction. You need to engage with them, talk to them. If in the church you've got somebody denying the gospel, they should be, as Paul said, rebuked sharply. The word of God and its cutting edge should be brought to bear. The scripture in loving, godly, strong conversation should be the tool that you use for teaching somebody not to teach false things. We don't teach myths. We don't teach the empty ideas of mere men. We must be a church that is devoted wholeheartedly to God's holy word, the Bible, which is perfect, inspired, sufficient, and inerrant. Now, again, I can't tell you for sure what the Jewish myths were, but from other passages in the scripture, from a little look at history, Jewish myths seem to have to do with mysterious things added to the scriptures. Extra legendary tales, non-authentic tales were written about obscure Bible characters. Weird little tricks were done with numbers to find hidden messages in the names and the genealogies. Paul says God's people are not supposed to have anything to do with that kind of stuff. Here's a quick application we can make, okay? You need to be careful about the allure of embracing the mysterious in your faith. So often, people get really excited when something weird or bizarre is pointed out to them. They hear a Bible teacher or fellow Christian start getting into some creepy story about an encounter he had and there was a spirit in the room. And there, oh, I found a hidden code. If you add verse 7 up with verse 14 plus verse 21, and you look at the third name and the second line of each one, you find that it equals 777, which of course we know means don't do that. They love to tell stories of dramatic experiences. We love to hear people tell them, and we are far too easily drawn in. When someone takes a little half verse out of context in the Bible and builds a whole doctrine on it, anybody remember the book, The Prayer of Jabez, from like 20 years ago? You need to be very concerned. By the way, sometimes it's not the creepy, mysterious, the ooh, spooky that gets people. Sometimes, sometimes it's the Christian teacher who looks more intelligent and sophisticated. He is more with the times, and he'll lead you down a dangerous path because, well, yeah, the mysterious sounds so weird, but... That man, I mean, all the scientists agree with him. Oh, he, all the lost people around him think he's just a cool, understanding guy. Be careful. 
Over the past couple of years, I've heard the names of more than one supposed Bible teacher leading people astray by making false claims about visions from God. Now, again, you guys, how many of y'all have been here for a few years now with me? You know that I don't really enjoy naming names, right? It's not my thing. I'm not a hobby horse. Let's beat on somebody. But there's some names you need to hear and think about because they're fair examples. Give you one. How many know the name Beth Moore? Beth Moore would, especially in her latter couple of years of teaching in the last few years, has really enthralled her students with telling them how Jesus came to her and lifted her off of her front porch in her city and gave her a vision flying over the city of all the people of all the different churches around the city all brought together as one because all the denominations are just fine. And later, Beth Moore began to feel the leading of the Lord to preach in her church's Sunday services. That's a task God specifically says is for the men of the church. This woman used her visions, her claimed mystical experiences to lead women away from the teaching of the Word of God. Another popular example of dangerous teaching is a woman named Sarah Young, wrote a book called Jesus Calling, follow up Jesus Always. I looked up and saw that those had sold at least 15 million copies. She just said she wanted to write a book where she sat down and just listened to whatever God would say to her and she would write down whatever she heard from God. She'd sell it to encourage other Christian women. I mean, she was claiming direct divine revelation from God. Rachel Hollis, another name. She wrote the crazy popular book, Girl, Wash Your Face. Have you heard this one? She tells women that you need to become as happy as you want to be by defeating the lies you've told yourself. That sounds kind of, sounds pretty good. I'm not mad at that. Women just need to identify how powerful they really are inside and use that power to defeat the dangerous lies that they've let hold them down. But nothing in Rachel Hollis's book points women to the Word of God to find out what is true or what is a lie. The book's published by a Christian publisher. It is widely passed around and read in church groups. But Girl, Wash Your Face is secular self-help and positive thinking packaged in a pithy style. But it is promoted as if it's Christian. I want to read you a snippet of a review from Tim Challies on Girl, Wash Your Face. He says, quote, Because of the author's Christian background and publisher, you might wonder, what's the role of faith in this process of change? She says she's a Christian who believes God loves each of us unconditionally, and her creed is love your neighbor as yourself. Yet she affirms the validity of all faiths and is clear that her instruction is equally effective for all women, no matter their lifestyle or religious convictions. Thus the book and the happy life it describes are available not only to Christians, but to all people willing to put in the effort. End quote. A couple more. Over the past couple of years, 
There's been many a false, dangerous teacher that honestly tries to point people directly away from the Word of God. Megachurch pastor Andy Stanley told people a few years ago they should unhitch from the Old Testament and stop saying to people, the Bible says. Apologist William Lane Craig, just in the past couple of weeks I saw an article where he publicly denies the doctrine of original sin, and he tells people that the historical Adam cannot be anything quite like what the Bible presents. The Genesis presentation, because he wants to hold hands with the scientists, must be mythical. It must be symbolic. Adam must be the descendant of Neanderthal man about 750,000 years ago. It's the only way it works, according to Craig. He wants to be sophisticated. Craig says that the tree of knowledge, the serpent, the guardian cherubim, those are all metaphorical. Those weren't real things. And friends, that disregard of the word of God, while it will appeal to people as intellectually helpful, oh, it's scientific, oh, it makes me not look like a kook to my non-Christian friends, it will ultimately drive you away from any sort of trust in or submission to the word of God. That was just a few quick examples I thought of off the top of my head. I, I did a little Facebook survey, by the way, and had a few people help me with some books they thought were popular. But those are dangerous teachers. And they have tremendous popularity today. And there are countless other books, countless other podcasts, countless other YouTube videos that make their way through our churches and they're snatched up by eager church members who swallow them without caution, without discernment, and ultimately to their detriment. Not everything in popular books is bad. I love to read, but we've got to read books. We've got to listen to preachers with our minds in open and intent to see if their words are sound biblical teaching. So Christian, be discerning and reprove those who teach falsehood. Listen, you hear me? Somebody else here teach something not in the Bible? Come talk to me, please. Find out why we say what we say. Maybe there actually is something that you've missed. But you want to help people understand why you think the Bible doesn't say what they're saying. Do that for the love of God. Do that for the good of the church. Do that for the sake of the one who is teaching because you might be used by God to rescue somebody from the horror of having taught false things. Third point. Turn away from false teachers, verses 15 and 16. To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences, consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You know, part of the circumcision group asking people to submit to Jewish laws is to make certain things, especially in issues of food and stuff like that, out to be clean or unclean, right? Pure, impure. Paul makes a distinction here. And it shows the dangers around those who teach a false gospel. Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. What he means is that to those who are made pure by the true grace of God in Jesus Christ, 
They are not bound by religious restrictions about what kind of food they can eat. They've been made pure by Jesus. Now all things are pure. By the way, you see any Christian trying to return to Jewish festivals and laws and food practices, they are dishonoring Christ. Side note here, by the way, please do not let yourself assume that because all foods are declared pure to the pure, all things are pure, that all substances are good to put in your body. Some people have and will mishandle this verse to suggest that since all things are pure, it's a good thing to eat funny mushrooms and smoke things that change your perception of reality. That is not at all what this text is saying, and no faithful Bible interpreter would say so. Now, on the other hand, to the impure, the lost, nothing is pure. The thoughts, the actions, the motives of those who are not truly saved can never be pleasing to God. You see, every action of a lost person, no matter how kind or good an action, it's always tainted by the fact that the action is not performed for the sake of God's glory under the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. To the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So no deed of a lost person, no matter how religious, is going to help them before God. Verse 16 says, they profess to know God. They deny him by their works. Maybe they say they're following God. Maybe they say, I've been saved. But their works, their actions, their false teaching show that they do not have a clue about what it means to be saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So these people are, as the passage ends, triply disqualified. They're detestable, they're disobedient, they're unfit for any good work. Y'all, those are harsh words. They're scary words. Words like this are only used for those who have made themselves enemies of God. Words like this are used only of those who are lost and in real danger of falling under the wrath of God. See, when a person adds to the gospel or changes the gospel... They prove that they never had the gospel at all. And when we see those false teachers, we need to turn from them. Yes, you notice them, you're aware of them. Yes, you rebuke them, try to silence their teaching in our churches. But if they will not repent, you turn away from them so that they cannot influence the church further. Christian, this calls for a humble boldness. This calls for you to be willing to be honest with all that you hear. You've got to care enough to rebuke someone and not just let them continue teaching falsehood. And let me show you one more thing this calls us to before we wrap up. Can you handle one more point? Yes. Okay. Point number four. Guard yourself with a commitment to the true gospel. Look back at Titus 1.9. We didn't read this today. We read it last week. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Remember this section follows Paul's call for faithful godly leaders in the church, right? Church needs men who can protect it from false teaching. Every believer should learn to guard against falsehood. And the way to do this, get this, this is really important for you today, 
The way to do this is to hold firm to the trustworthy word of God as taught. A very kind seminary professor of mine used to tell us a story of a preacher who had a man come into his town and the man was preaching error. And the pastor's friends asked him, you going to preach against that guy's error? And the pastor responded by telling them, no. Rather than focusing on the error of the false teacher, he said, I just intend to preach the truth better. Something I want you to take from that, okay? I don't want the stuff that I've given you in the first three points to turn you into some sort of error-hunting vigilante. No Bible Batman, whatever. I want this to remind you that false teaching is out there, but instead of letting it call you to spend all your time trying to hunt for false teaching and studying every falsehood you can study, I want it to draw you to being even more committed to you knowing the word of God for yourself. Paul in verse 1 said that he wrote for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. I believe the best thing you can do is love the word of God and strengthen your faith in the word of God and in the true gospel and grow in your knowledge of the truth that will lead you to godliness. So read the word of God. Study the word of God faithfully. Learn the truth inside and out because when you know the truth, you will not be in the danger zone of falling for a lie. I guess, you know, you've heard the illustration probably a hundred times, but how do they train people to spot counterfeit money? They teach them to learn the real thing so well that when any type of counterfeit comes along, they can see it. They don't make them study counterfeit money because that's only one kind of a thousand different varieties. You learn to study a real bill and you'll spot a counterfeit. Make sense? Let me say to you that if you don't know the truth, let me give you the place to start as we wrap up. Every one of us has been made by a holy and loving and just and perfect God. And every one of us has sinned before God, and our sin would cause us to face God's wrath and hell forever. But God in his mercy sent one and only one Savior, Jesus, the Son of God. He died and he rose from the grave to be the only way you and I can be forgiven. And if you want to start with the first, most important truth you can start with, start by confessing to God. You've sinned. Confess to God, God, I need your grace. Believe in Jesus. Ask Jesus, please, Lord Jesus, save my soul. Be committed to follow Jesus with your life. God will save you and change you and keep you. So I urge you, all of us who need to hear this, come to Jesus today. You can be saved by Jesus.
today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the privilege of preaching your word, of hearing your word. Thank you for the gift of your word. And I would plead with you, Lord, that as we are here under your word, challenged with a reminder that false teaching and false teachers exist, I would plead with you, Lord, that we would not succumb to dangerous false teaching. Instead, protect us by making us have our eyes fast on your word, committed to your word, committed to trusting your word, no matter whether it's easy for us to digest or whether it goes against our very nature, we know that your word is true. Make us people of the book and people of true doctrine and protect us from dangers in the church. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.